Good morning, wherever you are, and welcome to St. Michael's in the Morning, a podcast series encompassing everything from sermons and services to special audio presentations, brought to you by St. Michael's Episcopal Church in Austin, Texas. For more information or to make a donation to St. Michael's, please visit www.st-michaels.org. Good morning. My name is Luis Rivas, and I am the student minister at St. Michael's Episcopal Church. Joining me today is Father John Newton, our rector. It's really good to be here, Luis. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Uh, This is the fifth and final episode of a limited podcast series covering the Book of Common Prayer. To recap, we have covered the history of the Anglican tradition, an overview of the contents of the 1979 BCP, and a closer look into the liturgies of the Holy Eucharist and the daily office. In this last episode, we will change things up a little bit by turning it into an interview session with Father John, who, as rector, uses the remaining sections of the BCP probably more often than most. So John, which liturgy out of the pastoral offices have you performed the most And uh, what has changed the most between your approach the first time you presided over that service versus the latest occasion? Oh, that's a that's a wonderful, wonderful question. I think fortunately, um, the liturgy I've used um, the most is the celebration and blessing of a marriage. Um, having been ordained now for twelve plus years and uh, being fairly young when I was ordained, so many of my friends um, wanted me to officiate their service and also parishioners. And so, uh, I mean, I can't count how many weddings I've done, um, which is a really, really fun and meaningful liturgy to do because the Episcopal Church does weddings very, very well. If you read that marriage service, it is just brimming and overflowing with Uh, beauty and solid theological insight, not just into the nature of marriage, but also into what it means to be human. Um, And I have to say, whenever I started, like any young priest, uh, I was very much a stickler for the rules. And so if the rubrics said to do something, I would definitely do it. And uh, I would often try to kind of shoehorn the experience of the wedding into everything that the Book of Common Prayer said. And if a couple, you know, wanted to do something that was not in the prayer book, it was a firm no. Um, and I would just kind of stick to everything, um, not just the spirit of the law, but the letter of the law. Um, you know, this doesn't really work uh, very well. Um, so many of the marriages that I perform today, and I'm sure many of the weddings you've been to, don't actually take place uh, in the context uh, of an Episcopal sanctuary. That's usually not the setting where they take place. Um, many people are not familiar with the liturgy. So for instance, uh, if you go to the prayers uh, for the couple at the end of the ceremony, it assumes that the congregation knows to say amen after each petition. But even Episcopalians don't know to say amen after each petition. And so for my first wedding, I would awkwardly sit there uh, until everyone would figure out they need to say amen. And it just didn't really work very well. Um, You know, the liturgy assumes that the congregation needs to be standing all the way uh, through the liturgy of the word. But if you do an August wedding um, and you're outside uh, and it's hot, I quickly learned that uh, the bride and the groom often really prefer 
that the congregation is invited to be seated at the very beginning of the service. And so none of those um, changes I ever would have considered when I was ordained. But Jesus once said something interesting to uh, the religious teachers of the day. They said that um, the Sabbath was made for human beings, not human beings for the Sabbath. And I've adopted the same approach with the marriage liturgy that I will make some changes. You know, for instance, uh, the traditional giving away of the bride when uh, the father or someone else walks the bride down the aisle. There is no actual presentation in the liturgy. That is something that we insert. At the end of the service, there is no, would the congregation please stand? It is my pleasure to introduce John and Mary Smith. But you know, couples like that sort of thing. So I've worked that into the liturgy. And so long-winded way of saying that as time goes by, uh, I realize that what's beautiful about the liturgy is the liturgy itself and that some of the smaller things can be shifted in order to honor the couple so that they realize that yes, this day is about God, but you know, their wedding's important too and seeing them and their desires um, you know, that's something that we want to do as Christians. So I've taken a lot more liberties. The next question I have is about a liturgy that I personally love, but I don't really hear much of how it's used in the wider church. So what are your thoughts or experiences with the liturgy of reconciliation of the penitent? That is such a good question. So uh, if you've been following the podcast, uh, you know that we have a liturgy, the reconciliation of a penitent, the penitent, uh, where one can come before uh, a priest or in some cases a lay person, I can say more about that in a bit, uh, to offer a full confession of one's sins uh, as a sacramental rite in the church. Um, I have observed so much hesitancy uh, from people in the Episcopal Church to make use of the sacrament. Um, and I think that's true for a few reasons. One is, um, you know, in the Catholic Church, this isn't just uh, an encouraged sacrament. It is a required sacrament, and it is the way um, that one is absolved of their sins in uh, the Catholic understanding. And, and that's painting with a very broad brush, uh, admittedly. But the reconciliation of the penitent in Roman Catholicism isn't really like an optional sacrament. In the Episcopal Church, we believe, as we say in uh, one of the right one Eucharistic prayers, in one full sufficient sacrifice of um, oblation and satisfaction for the sins of the world that was made on our behalf. Um, meaning that um, the full forgiveness of sins has been offered uh, to the world and to the church through Jesus Christ, and that in some sense, I don't really have the power as a priest to withhold what God has already so graciously offered to you. And so, you know, I think that a lot of Episcopalians uh, don't make use of that sacrament for a few reasons. One, I think there's some fuzzy theology and when I say fuzzy, I don't mean fuzzy on our part. I just mean fuzzy in people's minds and hearts about what that sacrament does and why it's important. I think a lot of times um, clergy don't really uh, hold that sacrament forth in front of people as being a healthy and meaningful spiritual practice. Uh, I myself um, can fall guilty you know, to that. I don't always... Um, um, 
ask people to consider doing this. Uh, I do on a one-on-one -on -one basis, but I don't really publicize that, for instance, during Lent and say, I'll be in my office hearing confessions every Wednesday from noon to four, you know, sign up here. Um, and so I think a combination of those two things uh, have led people to not make full use of it. Um, you know, in my experience, um, people offer me their confession all the time. Anytime someone makes uh, an appointment with me for pastoral reasons, uh, and it's one that needs to be held in confidence, he or she usually discloses something that would look like um, a confession. And what I'll often do, depending on the circumstances, is to ask them, you know, would you like to make this confession in the container of the sacramental rite um, of the reconciliation of the penitent? And sometimes, you know, people will say yes, that'd be really meaningful. Um, sometimes they look at me kind of confused, and and sometimes they're they're just going to offer a hard no. Um, but what I can say is that even though offering this liturgy has been um, rare, I don't do it very often, it is always deeply, deeply meaningful. And I also think that there's a lot of potential there um, for us as a church to reclaim this as a meaningful part of our communal life. I think it's important to name that lay people can uh, engage in some aspect of this liturgy. You know, the difference is that a lay person cannot offer absolution of sins um, or declare God's forgiveness over the penitent sinner. But a lay person can certainly hear one's confession um, in a safe, confidential, loving container, offer an empathetic and spirit-guided, gentle word, reassuring that person of God's love, and say a prayer with him or her. And, you know, I just think that the main thing we have to do as a church is to actually reclaim the sacramental right, because this type of sharing and this type of love, um, we do this all the time in the church. And I just think that it needs to be more contained uh, within the sacrament. I know that uh, page 452 of the Book of Common Prayer actually has a prayer uh, listed there for when a lay person is the one listening to the confession. So, um, you know, the, the rubrics can be a little confusing because there are several options for the absolution for the priest, but I think that it's after the, the last question that if you're a lay person listening to the confession, you can just hop down to page 452 and end uh, with that prayer there. John, are there any other liturgies that you can think of that people may think only a priest can celebrate, but actually can be celebrated by lay people? Yeah, that's the, there's many of them, and that's just the, the great wonder of the Book of Common Prayer. Um, you know, sticking with the pastoral offices, a lay person can preside over part one of the ministration to the sick. Um, a lay person can't lay hands uh, on someone who's sick and bless them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or anoint someone with oil. But the Book of Common Prayer was designed to empower lay people to teach them to pray, not just to teach them to pray, but to teach them to lead corporate worship. Um, morning prayer, for instance, um, this assumes that a lay person who is fully qualified can preside over this office and lead the people of God in worship. 
And, you know, it's a big, big book, um, but um, this is not a book for clergy. And this is a book that we put in the hands uh, of everyone and say, this is your prayer book. Um, may these words uh, fill your mind and your heart, um, not only in your own personal devotion, um, but open it up in community um, and um, be God's minister in that context. And so uh, ministration to the sick would be the pastoral office that I offer, but you know the best way to, um, to discover that is to open the book and uh, the more you look into it, outside of a few things, there's usually some option uh, for a layperson to use in order to lead without a clergy present. Let's continue to the Episcopal services. So you obviously haven't presided over any of these because you're not a bishop, uh, but I'm assuming that you've been to plenty of these services, and I mean, at least three of them have been celebrated uh, for you specifically, right? Your ordination to the diaconate, then to the priesthood, and uh, your celebration of new ministry here at St. Michael's. So tell me your thoughts on how you have experienced these services at those three different times in your ministry, and what, what differences, if any, did you feel emotionally or spiritually in those separate instances? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the liturgies are, are so powerful. And, and one of the things that's really, really powerful about these three liturgies that, um, that you just referenced is uh, there's always such a strong clergy presence, you know, who vest, um, who process in together, uh, who share in this liturgy together. There's something really, really powerful about um, when clergy gather with a bishop to mark some new change happening in the life of the church. That is inherently a sign of hope. Um, you know, the one that most recently I took place in was my celebration of new ministry at St. Michael's. And it's just a beautiful liturgy. I mean, if you've never uh, looked at a, a liturgy like that, please open the prayer book and come through it because it really, it, it has everything. Um, you know, it, it doesn't have the laying on of hands or no one's ordained or anything like that, but it is the bishop um, coming to a church to remind the congregation that the ministry uh, of this church belongs um, both to the bishop, uh, to the new rector, and also to the people, and that all of those are true all at the same time. And so, for instance, like there's this wonderful part of the liturgy where parishioners bring the new rector, um, some symbol or gift of our shared ministry, right? They say, um, receive this bread and be among us as one who feeds us with the body of Christ. You know, embedded in that statement is, um, this is not your ministry, this is not our ministry, this is God's ministry and share in it with us. Um, in fact, I remember when I had the celebration of new ministry, there's this wonderful, wonderful piece of the liturgy where the new rector kneels um, kind of in the center aisle before everyone and prays this wonderful prayer about how, you know, oh Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but I renew myself, heart, body, and mind to your service. Bless me in this ministry. I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful prayer. And I just remember praying that prayer at St. Michael's and just weeping as I prayed it um, because um, God was so, so present, not just through the liturgy and the presence of the bishop, but also 
the whole congregation that had this history and that had done all this work and preparation to pray and to decide that I was the one called to be their rector, not making me more special than anyone else, but giving me this, this unique mantle of leadership and the whole congregation there, um, both to celebrate me and my ministry and to lift me up, but it culminates not with you know me ascending some high chair and receiving gifts and applause, but with me kneeling before everyone and confessing to God my own brokenness and need for help to steward this ministry faithfully. And so um, that's a really, really powerful liturgy. You know, the thing about ordinations are, I mean, talk is wonderful and I'd love to talk about them, but if you've never been to one, just go and soak it up. Um, Because there's a real sense of holiness when um, the person to be ordained goes to kneel before the bishop. And all the, if, if one's ordained a priest, all the presbyters, all the priests gather around uh, and, and almost surround this person. And one immediately feels the gravity of what's about to take place. It's almost like, you know, none of us will let you leave the sanctuary tonight without extracting a vow from you that you're going to serve God with your full heart. You know, you kind of feel the seriousness of that moment. Um, and my favorite part of that liturgy is, you know, right before the bishop um, lays hands on the one to be ordained, there's always uh, a calling of the Holy Spirit, you know, some sort of song we sing or chant in order to beg the Holy Spirit to be with us. Um, Again, just another way of reminding the one to be ordained and the one ordaining, um, the bishop and the clergy present and the people, that this is God's ministry and that we have been invited into something sacred and miraculous. Um, You know, one really feels that in a tangible way uh, when one is present for such a service. You know, I'd attended a couple of these before I was ordained a priest and um, it is a little different now that I am ordained um, um, being a clergy person for these, usually I know the person being ordained and having that personal relationship makes it pretty special. Uh, but also every time it happens, I just, I'm humbled just a little bit more to see that God continues to call people to be priests, that the spirit is alive, that churches are alive. You know, I've never been to an ordination service that's dead. I always walk away thinking, you know, the Lord was in this place. Would you expand a little more on your relationship with the Book of Common Prayer now, and then maybe share with us what it was like before you were ordained? Yeah, um, so what it is now is, um, I'll answer both. You know, what it is now is I just have a profound appreciation for its role in forming people's hearts, minds, and souls. We have a saying in the Episcopal Church um, that praying shapes believing. You know, as you pray, Uh, so your faith will reflect. And the wisdom of the Book of Common Prayer is that as we root ourselves in its liturgies over time, um, it changes how we see the world, it changes our hearts, it changes how we feel, it changes how we understand God, it changes how we pray and how we relate to our neighbor, and also uh, how we uh, find kinship or common ground with other people. You know, every um, Sunday, uh, whenever I I lead worship, you know, there'll be a couple hundred people there. And, 
we all have uh, different identities and things that interest us and stories and backgrounds and um and at the end of the day though it's very very clear we're one body that it is the one prayer that unites us that whenever we read something from the ambo on sunday morning that episcopalians from all over the world are hearing the same reading rooted in the exact same scripture and that's a profound um point of connection and what increasingly feels like a disconnected world and so uh, I, I've grown in my appreciation for the way that the Book of Common Prayer both connects us, but also how it forms us. Um, you know, one of the first um, prayers um, from the Book of Common Prayer I ever learned, it, it goes like this. It says, O Lord, support us all the day long until the shadows lengthen and the evening comes and the busy world is hushed and the fever of life is over and our work is done. Then in thy mercy grant us a safe lodging and a holy rest and peace at the last. Amen. Now, I, I don't even know where this is in the Book of Common Prayer. I think it's in the Compline service, but that's not the point. And the point is that I know that prayer because that was the prayer that my dad prayed with me whenever I was little every single night. And I never set out to memorize it. Just somewhere as a kid, I picked it up because that was the prayer that he prayed with me. And so for me, there's really two points that are meaningful. First, is everyone says, you know, I don't know how to pray. I don't know where to start. Um, you know, my dad's a, a good man, but I, I doubt that he is, you know, well-trained in extemporaneous prayer, you know, with this kid every night. And like any other parent, he tried to figure out how to pray with me. And so he went to the Book of Common Prayer. And so the Book of Common Prayer gives us words when we have no words. But not only that, it gives us you know, it gives us words that are deeply theological, historical, rich, um, and nourishing to our soul. Um, the second piece, though, is that it actually takes. Here I am, you know, 38 years old, and I only know that prayer because my dad taught me that prayer whenever I was little, and we prayed it every single night. And, you know, one might think that 30 years later, I would have forgotten that prayer, but I haven't forgotten that prayer. So, you know, if any parents are listening and you don't know how to pray with your kids, I would suggest, you know, aside from the Lord's Prayer, pick a beautiful prayer in the Book of Common Prayer. Say it with your kids every night. You might be surprised 30 years later when they remember it and then want to say that same prayer with their kids at night, which we do with Annie and KK. Um, so, you know, now I, I, I see the Book of Common Prayer as almost like this theological worldview that I inhabit that slowly but surely shows me what reality is. It shows me what the world looks like from God's perspective. Uh, it shows me what's right side up whenever I'm confused about that. And it, it gives me meaningful language uh, to talk about God. Um, because even priests often struggle for meaningful language, but the Book of Common Prayer gives me really meaningful language to talk about God that's shared. It's shared with all of you who listen. Um, and that's that's a change. You know, whenever I was going to seminary and, you know, maybe being confirmed, I really just kind of saw it as a book of prayers and, and wasn't present to how alive it was. And I think that's natural. You know, one only discovers that the Book of Common Prayer is alive through repetition. Um, uh, you know, our faith is a faith of repetition. Uh, you know, sometimes people will say, you know, don't just go through the motions. I say the Episcopal Church says go through the motions. 
go through the motions when you feel like going through the motions and go through the motions when you don't feel like going through the motions. Um, either way, um, the motions impact your life. And the motion of the Book of Common Prayer has impacted my life greatly. Thank you, John. Um, I too, you know, have a, I have a different experience. Obviously I didn't grow up with, uh, daily prayer or nightly prayer being a part of my routine. But, uh, when I became a Christian, it was in a different tradition, uh, the Baptist tradition, which places a heavy emphasis on scripture. Um, so, you know, memorizing portions of scripture is very encouraged and very, um, promoted as part of spiritual formation. But when I became an Episcopalian, I noticed that um, all of the language in the Book of Common Prayer is just steeped in references to Scripture, in putting together um, passages that are theologically related, but that maybe without that uh, context, I wouldn't have thought to put together. So, you know, kind of coming from this different perspective, I can say that it, that it has helped me, even as someone who was encouraged to learn and memorize a lot of scripture on connecting different voices in the Bible into a single thought in ways that I wouldn't have been able to connect by myself. Yeah, and the, the kind of the joke is, is that, you know, if you want to learn scripture, the way most Episcopalians tend to do that is through the prayer book, at least initially. You know, the, the joke in the Episcopal Church when Episcopalians do open up the Bible is, did you know there was a lot of the prayer book in there? So, <laughs> you know. With that, um, I want to move on to the last portion of this podcast, uh, because now that we've completed the Book of Common Prayer, I think the only thing left to, to cover is to talk briefly about some of the other liturgical resources that the Episcopal Church has. And I was wondering if you could give us a quick overview of what those are and when they are used. So first of all, it takes a tremendous effort to get a new Book of Common Prayer. That's a really, really big deal. And that's the reason that historically speaking, we don't do it very often. And we're probably not going to do it anytime soon. And um, so um, what that means, though, is that society changes uh, a lot quicker um, than the Book of Common Prayer. The Book of Common Prayer was, you know, published in 1979, but uh, it, it really, um, all the thought and everything and the theology that went into it, you know, was being developed even years before that. And the world has changed tremendously. And um, liturgy done well um, you know, liturgy means work of the people. Um, liturgy done well is a prayerful kind of contextualizing of people faithfully reaching out to God in their context. And when contexts change really, really quickly, um, we need liturgies to adapt. Uh, and we can't just write a new prayer book. And so what that means is that the Standing Commission for Liturgy and Music of the Episcopal Church um, they approve and and uh, create uh, all different types of liturgical resources that can be made available um, to um, dioceses and clergy. For instance, uh, if we know that um, God is not a male, um, that God has no gender, um, and so if you get a little tired of um, um, masculine language for God and you need something that reflects uh, a little bit of 
the motherly aspect of God. Um, that you know, we have liturgies that have subtle language shifts that reflect that. For instance, we have resources like Enriching Our Worship, which has alternate confessions and Eucharistic prayers. We use some of those at St. Michael's at our 9 a.m. service. And kind of the rule is, is that it's up to the bishop of each diocese to allow what resources can and cannot be used. And because of the diversity within the Episcopal Church, uh, every bishop kind of has different rules. Um, in our um, diocese, um, Bishop Andy Doyle, he has appointed a worship commission, actually, that is um, chaired by um, uh, Bishop Suffragan Jeff Fisher. And that commission is really um, tasked with looking at the various theological resources in the Episcopal Church and making recommendations to him about which ones should and should not be used. Now, you might wonder, well, why not use all of them? Um, and it, it's a good question. And I think there's a tension that we hold in the Episcopal Church, which is that part of our identity is this book of common prayer. I mean, if you listen to the first episode, that was very clear. Like, what makes us one? Well, we have this book and we all pray the same stuff. And this is kind of what binds us together. Well, what happens when you have not one book, but 84 books, you know? Does that fragment the sense of unity we have? Not necessarily, uh, but it is something we need to pay attention to. So most bishops, um, they obviously allow use of the Book of Common Prayer. That's a standard liturgy. But for um, churches uh, or alternate, you know, different services that want a different uh, flavor. Um, they often allow other liturgical resources like enriching our worship. Um, you know, the, the book, uh, the prayer book in New Zealand is really, really popular with some churches and bishops can authorize that for use. Um, but bishops always have the right uh, to not allow a liturgy, especially if there's a theological sentiment expressed in a supplemental liturgy that violates their conscience as a chief pastor. Uh, or for the sake of some sense of unity, I'm only going to allow these resources because if we allow too many, um, that can kind of fragment our unity. So there's a million reasons why the bishop could not allow a liturgy, um, but most of them make allowances for other resources. Well, thank you for being here today, John. And I want to thank our listeners at home. It is our sincere hope that this podcast was a useful resource in helping you gain a better understanding of our worship, history, theology, and tradition in the Episcopal Church. It was a joy for me to research and write these episodes. And if you have any feedback or questions that you would like explored in a future podcast series, email all of those to L. R-I-V-A-S at saint-michaels.org that's El Rivas at saint-michaels.org uh, or visit, visit us online via saint-michaels.org and give us some feedback there. Thank you all and have a great rest of your day. Thank you, Luis. That was fun. I appreciate it. <laughs>